also one of the guys who was like, he wants to give back. I'm always alarmed when I hear this sentence. <laughs> it's like a red flag, it, right? <laughs> it, definitely. Because if you don't take away, you don't have to give back. Welcome to Elixir of the Gods. This is season two, and this is our chapter two. And we have a guest again today. First of all, hello, Diego. Uh, welcome. Hey, Albert. How are you? <laughs> Very nice good. Being here Very again. good. And uh, today we have Axel Hoon here, who is the owner of Mescaleria.de. Is that correct? That's uh, correct, yeah. First of all, thanks for having me. Officially, I call the company Mescaleria Berlin, and I have the domain DE, and it got common that people pronounce just say DE, Mescaleria mm -hmm. DE. But now that we have more people into Mescal, um, it makes uh, sense. It, it makes sense, but on the other hand, it looks a bit like too big for what it is. But back in the days, it worked pretty well and recognizable mm -hmm. in Mexico mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. I was the first one to to import some of the brands. But uh, yeah, that's correct. So that was one of my next questions. So you would consider yourself as a German pioneer in, in Mezcal? Is, is for that sure. For, <laughs> Not for sure, for sure. Yeah, well, before I started out, there were no regular imports of any products of Mezcal at all, not even Gusano Rojo or Beneva or like the industrial stuff, let alone artisanal products and traditional Mezcal. There were a few bottles of Del Marguet to be found in uh, Le Maison de Whisky in France and um, probably in England, but that was pretty much it. In Germany, there was nothing. What year is this? We're, we're yeah, what did you... There, I started in 2009, so this yeah. is my 10th year in the business. Okay. And, and uh, what got you into... What? I was my first education. Well, my se my second education. My second second education is I'm an architect, and I study. I moved to Berlin to study architecture in '96. Before that, I lived in the south of Germany, where I'd learned uh, landscaping. I'm a landscape gardener also, and uh, then I moved to Berlin to study. And after the preliminary studies in '98, I got offered a project from a professor who would gather students and some money and funds, let the students make designs for houses and build them in Oaxaca in the villages. And these houses were, of course, of like local material like adobe, which is mud brick, wood, uh, bamboo, palm, whatever was around. And that's what I did throughout my studies, first as a student, then as a tutor, which is like uh, a student helping the professor. And then the last two years on my own behalf, like kind of a junior professor. So I built about or participated in building about like 30 houses uh, okay. in Oaxaca. In which, in which towns? In the Valle Centrales, it was Ocotlan. The next to Ocotlan is San Antonino Castillo Velasco. Okay. Then in the Sierra Sur, in Teojomulco, in a village next to it, which is called El Venado. And uh, also in the Sierra, Sierra Norte in, in Tepetotutla. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, various. And then... How much time did you spend? So b back, back in that time? Back in that time, I spent like two to three months every year okay. there in, uh, in springtime. Okay. Right after the winter, before the rainy season would start, because it was a good, it's a good time to build. Actually, it's also a good time to, to make mezcal. Because in the rainy season, agaves get... They have too much water. Yeah. And uh, traditionally, the dry season is uh, good for making mezcal and uh, building houses because when the rainy season starts, people have to go and uh, tend their fields. Mm. So yeah, um, in the dry season, they do all the activities that are not related to nurturing the, the family, the, the fields. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that's what I did for like 80, uh, eight years. And uh, then I worked another two years here in, in Berlin and in the Emirates in Abu Dhabi. And then after Abu Dhabi, it was kind of a catharsis. I had the impression I had to do something else with okay. my life. Okay. And, you know, um, I felt I had to go back to Mexico, but not as an architect. And I just wondered what I could do. And of course, everybody traveling has once the idea if they see nice stuff, or oh, I have to bring that yeah. to where I'm from. Yeah. You know? Do you remember your first mezcal? Oh, yeah, probably. Probably. Probably it was the f when I was the first time in Mexico, which was in 91 in Cipolite. Okay. At a beach bar. Mm -hmm. So there, there was this Canadian girl that came up with that bottle and said, oh, this is what they do here. This is what they drink. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
and I think that without a label or anything, right? <laughs> yeah, just a plastic bottle. Yeah, yeah, that could have Coca-Cola been that bottle. could have been the first mezcal I drank in my life, probably. Yeah, <laughs> consciously. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 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 okay. In '91, you were then, then, but you weren't there just traveling. Or you were there already building houses? No. No, in 91, I, I finished, after I finished school and my, my service, the social service I did uh, instead of going to the military, the Zivildienst. And when that was over, we were three, no, four friends traveling to Mexico okay. and, and Guatemala. Okay. But just enjoying? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was the first time I went to Oaxaca also. Okay. And then... In 2003, during one of these projects, I passed through San Bartolo, the San Bartolo Coyotepec, which is famous for the Barro Negro, for the black, black clay um, items they do there. And I wanted to buy some, some souvenirs for friends and stuff. And I passed this house where this guy stood in and I asked him if I could find something to eat and he said well I don't know there's nothing to eat here but look I have mezcal <laughs> and Good idea. it was on an empty it was Lalo Angeles from really? the uh, from the Angeles family who do Real Minero Lalo now has its own brand and this was my enlightenment in mezcal because what he had to offer was light years apart from what the, the average mezcal tasted like And he had a story to tell from his family and stuff like that. And I still regard him one of the best mezcal distillers in Mexico. What a coincidence sure. yeah, yeah. that you walked into his house, especially. Is that that's Well, yeah, there's this saying that you don't find mezcal, mezcal finds you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this was it. And then when I dropped out of my architecture office, I wrote them an email. I said, well, maybe we should try and get your, your product to, to Germany and I will, I will sell it. And actually, they didn't respond for two or three emails. Then I bought myself a ticket and I said, I got a ticket now. I will be there on that on that date. And then they wrote back, say, yeah, okay, come by. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can stop by now. <laughs> stop sending emails, please. Yeah. Yeah, and that's how it started. Well, I had the idea to import other stuff too, but I, I But was thought, he still working for Real? He was Or, working for Real Minero together with uh, Graciela, his okay. sister, and okay. his father. His father died about two years ago, but okay. um, Lalo left the company before that already. He uh, did a three-year period as the mayor, as the Presidente Municipal okay. in Santa Catarina. Okay. And uh, a duty that is like, how do you say that? You don't get paid for, you, you, you get elected or selected, and then you have to do it, kind of. Okay, okay. And like many families or prestigious men in the village are have to do that. Honorary. Exactly. Okay. And... Um, Lalo did it for three years, and then I think after that he dropped out of the company and okay. founded his own one, okay. which is called La Locura. His brother Edgar stepped into Real Minero when his father died two years ago, and uh, he used to, by coincidence, he used to be an architect, mm. <laughs> and now is a mezcal distiller, and a really good one also. Okay. So this family is pretty talented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they are. And they, and, and they are an institution in the mezcal industry, I would say. Do you know them personally? Do you personally, know? I don't, but by name. And mm. I've never, I've been to Santa Catarina, but I've never been in the Palenques in Santa Catarina. So yeah, from, from, from those years afterwards, go on. Then it took them quite a while to get all the papers ready and stuff to have their first export. So I asked Dan Santos as a second producer because I knew that they already exported to the US. So okay. it was very likely that But they you were... you knew Jaime or no? I didn't know Jaime. I knew the guy who built their distillery and the restaurant in Oaxaca because okay. he was teaching at the Num, and that was our partner in ah, the okay. architectural exchange programs. Okay. So I had some relations, like faraway relations okay. to the company, let's say. And But you had a way to get there. I called a, a friend of a friend uh, who was working at the company and told her, could, could you make me an appointment with Jaime? I want to talk to him. And the very day that the appointment was, I walked into the office and she wasn't there, but Jaime was there. And I said, hello, Jaime, I've got an appointment with you. He looked at his diary and said, no. <laughs> <laughs> but come in anyways. And then we talked. And uh, the next day, um, I went to the distillery. He told me, you go to the distillery tomorrow with Hector, who was the master distiller at that time. And And uh, have a look what we're doing. And when I came back, 
And it was also kind of a test of an exam that I had to pass. I think I, I asked the right questions and behaved the right way. Okay. So the next day he told me, yeah, we can, we can try and start. And Maybe he wanted to get to know you a little better, not just like, hey, I want to take your product. Yeah, and after a few years afterwards, they told me, well, you know, even in that days and now even more, people stepped in my office every day to ask me if we could work together. And all of them wanted to have free samples and you were the first one who paid for the, for his samples to take away <laughs> and that was an important point <laughs> decent enough for that so you started before with with Dansantes you asked first Real de Minas. Well, the... the um, But you started before with Dan Santos because they Real were a bigger Minero, company. Real de Minas hey, is perdón, another perdón. brand. Real Minero. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, I got that's important. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. do that favorite Real Minero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Real, you started... You asked Real Minero before and I have the bottle in front of me and I, and, and, and I got confused. <laughs> But... Because they were a bigger company, no? I can um, imagine. More organized. Like Dan Santos... It's, it's a kind of uh, a lot of paperwork to go through all the certifications that you have to have in Mexico to export. First of all, uh, Mezcal is a, a product with a denomination of origin. So you have to uh, fulfill all the requirements to have a product that bears the name Mezcal. And secondly, after you have done that, you need to register your brand. And then after that, you need to register as an official exporter. That's quite a long way. So it took them one and a half years really to, to go through all of that. Okay. And you have to be patient. Uh, yeah, yeah, business. yeah, yeah. Especially in Mexico. My first experience, of course, with all the emails I wrote and the tickets I bought and got the appointment is you have to sit in front of the people to really like yeah, make yourself true. understood. Yeah, it's true. Especially, not specially, but I can imagine also back then, because the mezcal industry has changed a lot and now you can find it's, it's changed a lot, but it didn't used to be like you sit in an office, you know, mm. sometimes you sit in, in a Pepsi chair in the middle of... You meet them at the Palenque normally, exactly. which so, is so in the, the, in the was, bush. Exactly. So in reality, they need to see you and, 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 and measure you in a way so that they can understand if they want to work with you, mm. you know? Yeah, of course. And me the same, you know? And we also have to take into account technically the, the internet and our smartphones and everything 10 years back. Wasn't as... <laughs> as yeah, of course, yeah, of course. So communication was There were no yeah. smartphones, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know? Getting to the towns wasn't that easy, you know? Like today, Google Maps, getting to the towns was like, of course, if you get a boss and you, but if you drive yourself, it was like, especially in Oaxaca, man, the roads are complicated and... Yeah, and I made my I made my thesis project on urban development of Oaxaca in 2003, I think, when there were no Google, or it was the beginning of Google Maps, but uh, the material was, you couldn't really use it. And uh, you can't imagine how the work was back then, like you still worked physically on paper yeah, all I can the time. Imagine. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know, all of that has changed a lot. Of course, without the internet, the job I'm doing would not be possible. That's, that's a clear thing. Yeah, nowadays. Um, or you would have to run a company with 10 employees and, you know. So you're selling not only in Berlin, you're selling across Germany? Or? I'm selling across Germany and I have some partners abroad. I'm exporting to Denmark, uh, Switzerland, Austria, and sometimes a few of the other like smaller markets in the European Union where the producers don't want to ship individually because it's too much hassle for them to ship like a half a pallet or stuff like that. So it goes, it goes over my warehouse. And I'm selling to end consumers by my own online shop, some other online shops I, I sell to. And uh, most of it goes to the gastronomy, mm -hmm. cocktail bars, yeah. most of it. Yeah. I would like to make a little pause. Uh, we have, I just said, we had a bottle in front of us. So please, Axel, just enlighten us on what you brought today. Oh, yeah. So that we, yeah. Well, I brought two Real Minero bottles. One is a rather new batch from 2018, which is a mix of Barril and Madre Cuiche. These are two uh, expressions or subspecies of the Agave Kravinsky family that roughly looks like, like a yucca tree, the yucca palm, not like the classic agave. It has a stem and therefore um, it does not bear that much sugars. It's rather woody. The other is also a mix from Barril, but with Quiche. Now, Quiche is in all the other villages and areas in Oaxaca or in Mexico. Uh, agave Rodacanta, um, commonly also known as Mexicano or Dovadan, but only in Santa Catarina Minas. 
you know, the other way around. This is what it is in Santa Catarina, Minas, and the, in the rest of the of the country, it is also um, a subspecies of the Kravinsky family. So giving names to agaves, is, especially common names, is pretty confusing. Also because not only are they giving names to agaves that other people understand uh, in, in another place, yeah. in another yeah. way, but we have... Officially, I think 17 different uh, indigenous languages in Oaxaca. And of course, these people give an indigenous name to the indigenous agaves around them. Of course, of course. Yeah. And then on top of that are common names like barril. It's called barril. It's, it's similar to barrel. It means the same. Because the shape of the, of the heart of the agave, when you shave it to produce uh, mezcal, it looks slightly like a barrel. It has a barrel form. Madre Quiche, I can't really explain. And um, I tend to call the agaves the way the producers call them mm -hmm. and um, stick to their uh, traditional nomenclature instead of using the scientific ones. The scientific one is to explain to which family it belongs, but on the product itself, mm. um, I take the traditional names. But if I said... You say I have a Madre Quiche here from from uh, Real Min Minera. Um, yeah, Real Minera. Uh, it could be a different plant than if I go somewhere else in Oaxaca and to another company, and it would it could have the same name on it, but it could be a different plant technically. That that could happen, right? right? Yeah, it happens a lot with um, the common name of Ceniso. A lot of regions have an agave ceniso, which means it has the color of ash, mm -hmm. like uh, the ceniso. Cenizas? Ceniso. 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 Ash. But it refers to very different agaves um, all over the country. Mm -hmm. And um, the first bottle that I brought is also goes under the new category of ancestral. We have a new norm since I think now it's almost two years. Which differentiates between mezcal, which can be anything with any technique produced. We have mezcal artesanal, which just means like handmade. And we have mezcal ancestral. The ancestral is the most like rigid category. It uh, refers to a product made exclusively without uh, materials from outside mm -hmm. and in theory, also, you don't need a power source except for human or animal labor. Mm -hmm. And it has to be distilled in, in clay pots. In clay, okay. So not even a copper pot still would be allowed for ancestral. Mm -hmm. It refers to a product that could have been the same, made the same way like 300 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the other one is the classic, is, um, goes, is still under the, the old label, the, the Barril Quiche. This is not ancestral because in that case, the only difference to the ancestral category is they don't crush the agave by hand or by a millstone with a horse to it, but uh, they crush it with a grinder. Mm. Okay. Where you need electric. I want to make a parenthesis here. Can you personally, Axel, distinguish the flavor? If it was with Tajona or it was with a grinder? No, yeah. I don't think Me people neither. can do that. Me neither. It's, and mm -hmm. it's, yeah, people claim they can do that, but I don't think it's possible because there are so many factors to the flavor of a mezcal that you can't break it down to one single factor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there are differences because I know that people, uh, the fermentation works differently, but you can only tell the difference if you make a batch of the same raw material from the same field with one or the other technique in parallel. Exactly. exactly. And I know that Don Santos did that once when the government was giving grinders to all the producers, also the Alipus producers. And um, so the company was a little critical if the product would uh, stay the same if they would use the grinder. Mm -hmm. And um, so they uh, motivated the producers to make a batch like that make one oven with one uh, filling of espadine, split the cooked agave in two, mm -hmm. grind one with a grinder, grind the other one with the tahuna, and then distill them separately and make a blind tasting in parallel. And from the classic old four Alipus producers, three of them selected um, the tahuna crushed material for the flavor. The better. They, they thought it was better. It they thought better. it was better. But could they... Could they tell this was done with Tahona or they just said, 
I don't think. It was a, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. Because um, there's, like I said, there's so many factors. Yeah. Fermentation is, is always kind of a little different. And I don't think that you can really tell it. Yeah. Well, there are people who tell apart uh, agaves if they are single varietal distills. If they are blended or mixed together, uh, it's already very difficult. I'm happy if I can tell apart a copper pot distillation and a clay pot distillation. Mm. <laughs> That's, <laughs> no, that you can tell. That you can if, tell. If I score 100 <laughs> in that, I'm already. I know, happy. me too. If, if they give me 100 and I score 100 there, then I would be. I would feel myself like, self like a sommelier. But no, 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 no. Yeah, but that you, you would can, be also very drunk, probably. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, that would be an exercise for days. So sorry, we made a parenthesis to talk about the mezcales you brought, but going back to the story you were telling, Axel, which I think we are already in which year, around 2012, 13? Well, let's say I started 2009. I was pretty much alone on the market until 2012, 13, I would say. In Europe or in Germany? In Germany. Okay. Of course, Del Marguerite was yeah. present on BCB. For example, they already had an importer with Le Maison, which spread it over Europe to people who were interested the B to is, sell it. The BCB is a barkeeper. Bar, bar convent. Berlin. Bar Berlin. It's the, the biggest uh, bar and spirits fair in, in Europe. Meanwhile, it was pretty small back then. And then I don't know. I don't know really what happened. Like people thought, yeah, we can we can get into mezcal. Some Mexicans, like like you know, people living here, like taking, Diego, like Diego, <laughs> taking yeah. the chance and opportunity, or also other people trying to team up with some brands. But it's it was complicated. I think it's still kind of complicated because German market is really hard to move. People are hard to move because Europe produces about let's say. 80% of all spirits categories itself. So to introduce a new category from outside, from abroad, is kind of hard because people are kind of satisfied with what they have because we have high-end scotch, uh, cognacs, condivis, yeah, yeah. like crappa, vodkas, like there's everything. But then on the other hand, you will also always find people who have the tongue for a good product, you know, but they don't make up a big market. Hmm. That's it's difficult to to to. But what I hear heard from you, you're not too unhappy about it that it doesn't go so mainstream. Is it? Did I hear that right? Or uh? yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know the numbers about the comparison between Germany and the U.S. in terms of mezcal, but I know them in tequila, and uh, we are the third biggest tequila market in the world. And we have about, the U.S. market is about 20 times bigger than the German market. So it's Mexico and the U.S. and then there's a, a, a steep drop. 80% of exports from Mexico go to the U.S. It's mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, of course, then you have the advantage that you have people being interested. You have clubs and tastings and blogs and artists that do stuff or photographers at least and things like that all of what we don't have over here but you also have a very let's say a market that's not too sensitive culturally ecologically also in in economies but it's it's what turns a product that was originally a cultural expression of the people producing it on a very place from the very material in their surrounding into a commodity. Correct. And if that happens, something goes wrong. Or get some lost. Of the produce, some of the get producers lost, I mean. yeah, yeah. get lost in the product and the, the consumer will not have the same thing. But on the other hand, also, uh, it has a huge effect on the, on the producers and the environment where they produce. We have to, we have to it's Oaxaca and the producers, these people are still relatively poor. So if they get offered money, it's really hard for them to say, no, we don't want to have that money in favor of conserving our culture. Now, Oaxaca is very resilient to, to changes. Even in Mexico, the Oaxacan people are considered a bit like yeah, yeah. stubborn, let's say. <laughs> 
And if they were not, mezcal would not exist anymore. Uh-huh. You know, it would have had the same fate as as tequila, for example, or many other traditional products from all over the place. Mm. But still, um, not so long ago, many of the producers that today produce for some of the big brands, they used to produce mezcal, but for their family and their town. And in a different time of the year, they produced uh, beans, frijoles, and maize, and blah, blah, blah. But they produced mezcal, but not as a business. And now, and as Axel said, with the new shape the market is going to, they can get offered some money for something that was like a passion for them, stress the producer, change the dynamic of the family and the industry. If it grows too fast, and it did, it's complicated to keep the balance. Yeah, especially as or what's happening right now, for example, the ecological impact is pretty big because demand of agave rises. And not only this, but also the wood that they need to fire their ovens. And most of them distill also with wood-fired uh, pot stills. Um, so wood is also an, an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, it breaks apart a lot of the traditional economy that people would have. And now when demand rises, uh, the prices will also rise. So if you get a lot of demand for agave, the agave prices rise. Now, many people who used to have land and produce agave and then distill are withdrawing from distilling, for example, because they can easily live from what they're selling in in agave crops. The holistic concept that Mezcal had back in the days breaks open and leaves like fragments of the original structure and uh, changes very much how how communities work economically Mm. in the region. I was telling Albert that I heard not so long ago that Mezcaloteca, which is a wonderful brand, classical for for doing like starting to label the bottles with all the information and they they, they try to be very transparent and now they're erasing the information from the bottles because and i heard this in in in, a, in an interview uh from filion what's, what's mm-hmm. her first sylvia name? sylvia filion yeah they're they're taking the information away because big brands are contacting directly the producers and uh it's a mess man and uh, yeah they they were kind of like let's say in practice, discovering these producers as good producers and offering their product at their uh, at their bar in in Oaxaca City, which is actually more like a library or educational yeah. uh, educational bar, if that exists. Is that Hector who runs that bar? Is that uh... no? It's no. Uh, Silvia Filon Sil- and mm-hmm. Marco Ochoa is her husband, as far as I know. One of the major problems that we see in the last two years is that the big companies, spirits companies like Pernod Diaceo and others step in and try to take advantage of the category and they're changing completely the game. I don't think that in a long run they will be happy with that at all because uh, it's very simple. You can't scale mezcal, at least not a lot, the production. Mm. You know, If you do it, you change the product and it turns into what already exists and it's called tequila. Mm-hmm. As simple as that. Now, the big brands have stepped in to take advantage of the pouring mezcal, let's say, the, the bar market, the cocktail market, because this is what's attractive for them. Mm. Because that's where they ship a lot of This is what product. makes volume. Yeah. And so they have to change a product that by its very nature in every batch turns out slightly different in taste, sometimes in quality, which is made from the resources available available around the producers, which is not always the same agave. Uh, so sometimes they distill that one, sometimes the other one. And the classic thing is they distill uh, mixtures like these two bottles of Minero that we have here mm-hmm. because they have that one and that one available at the same time so they they mash it and distill it this diversity is sacrificed for a product that always tastes the same and has the same abv so it's easy to be handled in a cocktail Mm. so it changes completely the character character of the product and the only thing that stays the same is that people expect smokiness from a mezcal Mm. now that's another issue mezcal is smoky but um it's not all about smokiness. Smokiness should be a factor, but well integrated in all of the other complex flavors that mezcal has. And uh, if you look at uh, the regions outside of Oaxaca, most of the country 
in Mexico does not produce as smoky mezcals as does Oaxaca. This is something that people still have to learn. The big ones want to have a smoky agave spirit. Fun fact, many tequileros or tequila producers now to start, start to produce smoky tequila. Oh, okay. Like Sierra has a fumado. Um, I read today that there's another company, maybe Cuervo, who has a, a smoky product. So they try to emulate, in a way, the character that was lost a long time ago. Is, is that the... Yeah, back in the days, like 100 years ago, the product was the same. It was mezcal. It was uh, uh, cooked in, in pit ovens, and yeah. it was mashed with tahonas, and it was, it was the same. It was just it was like just made from local agave rum. Vino mezcal de tequila. Is the original Instead. name, right. And what stayed was tequila, because the rest was too complicated. Then, over the years, it got more and more industrialized, and these characteristics were set sacrifice to address more people and make it easier for them to drink, let's say. And now things are going back. More and more people start to produce with tahonas again or ferment with the fibers in the mesh. Normally it's separated in the industrial production because the fibers are, are difficult to handle. Mm. And also bottle at a higher ABV. The original... Even oven pits. Pardon? Even the oven pits, the holes... In the ground? Yeah. Some I companies in tequila are starting Cascawin to... has one, um, and I'm fortunate enough to have the product in the near future. It's called a Tequila Ancestral, so that category doesn't officially exist, but... Um, Cascawin is doing it? Cascawin, um, okay. under the Siembra Valles label. Yeah, yeah. They uh, do wonderful tequila. They cook in a pit oven and they mash by hand, uh, ferment in a wooden open vat. I don't know if they add yeast or have a, a wild yeast around. That's the only factor I don't know. And then they distill in a copper and wood pot still, Michoacan style. It's called a Filipino still. This is what they use outside of Jalisco um, to produce mezcal. And the, the original traditional ABV t uh, for tequila is uh, around 46%. So many producers come back to and make additions like high ABV additions, special bottlings around 46 hours, 48. Then Fulano has one at 50. Some even go uh, further to 55. Yeah. Sometimes they're pretty alcohol straight in your face because there's a lot of body missing to the product. But um, we, almost, you know, like yeah, we, see, we see that uh, people try to recover the old techniques. Well, but in, in general, do you drink tequila or is it not a product that you would recommend? Uh, I do drink tequila, especially after I learned that... Well, you have, to, you have to look at it not as a simple mezcal, let's say, or an industrialized mezcal, because over the years they have developed their own crop, the Blue Weber agave that tequila is made from. Back in the days, they were distilling from all kinds of agave. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then at some stage, they decided to only use that one. So it became kind of indigenous to the region and the category also They because it was it was reproduced all the time which also now has some problems ecological problems but um, big ones it is a product that's made with special techniques in a special region from a special plant and it's not mezcal anymore mm -hmm. so it's something on its own and you can do it so it's a cousin a, a related cousin but yeah uh, and you can do it in the industrial quick way and make some like plant flat boring liquid or you can do it a decent way and then have a good product in the end tequila is a mezcal so there is great tequila the problem is 98 of tequila is made i wouldn't say the wrong way but that's the reality the mm, wrong the, way the you fast know way. yeah yeah the fast the fast exactly. way exactly yeah. but there is great tequila you can find great tequila still I think the important thing is, I think you have to be reluctant with barrel aging. You know, um, brown tequila, which is actually supposed to be a barrel-aged tequila, which got brown by putting it in a barrel, the same way that like a grain distillate would become brown in a barrel and then turn out whiskey. If it's too much, it does kill the flavors of the raw material, which is the agave, and which gives the complexity and in that case, it is about the raw material. Right. It is in a way, it's a cocktail, then, right? So there's you add some ingredients, and it, it's a <laughs> well, it's an infusion. Let's say, like yeah. you would put herbs or stuff to uh, distillates to make them to alter their, yeah. their, their, their infusion taste. Infusion is a better word, yeah. Um, but like in eau de vie and fruit brandies, also in agave, it's about uh, the raw material. It is 
uh, very old when it comes to the distillery, about seven years, or in Mezcal with the wild agaves, it can go up to 15, 20, or 30 years. So the terroir that the plant brings into the distillery mm. is already very, very complex. And then on top of that, the different techniques that are used to cook, to grind, to ferment the yeast, etc., adds a lot. So this is what you want to have in the bottle. And if it's well done, the product, when it comes out of the still, is already finished. Yeah. You don't have to add something to it. In the case of whiskey, have you tried white whiskey ever? No. I've it's ever. undrinkable. <laughs> it needs to go through aging to become something you would enjoy. Yeah. I once tried white whiskey because I was in a in a distillery and I and they told me try this. You're not going to like it, but I was like what does white whiskey taste like and they were like like this man try it and it's like uh, what is it? Like like have you this uh homeopathy what would be left there without the little things? The alcohol, you know? Weird. Not alcohol, basically. But it, it has become pretty famous, the raw, the raw white whiskey as white dog over the last years. Um, technically, it's only a grain distillate. Mm. And uh, I think it depends on what you distill, the ABV, etc., um, how drinkable it is. But like I said, in, in, in uh, agave brandies, it's, um, it's about other, other factors. Mm -hmm. And um, if you do a reluctant aging program, maybe you can add something and gain but if you got like dark brown liquids uh, extra añejo category stuff from tequilas i think it's not worth it that, that that category was born like two years ago and it was born when the big companies started like with casa dragon and stuff that category did not exist it, it's it exists since really not so long ago and it started when the big 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 companies entered the market and said we have to create new categories you know and this extra añejo also casa dragon distilling three times also distilling three times also steals yes. steals flavor from the from the from what you want to have you know anyhow this is not a, a, a critic it's just what's happening in the industry in mm. general you know mm. extrañejos more distillations it's not the right way to go maybe i don't know N newest development cristalinos cristalinos yeah. are barrel aged one, yeah. products that you afterwards filter so you got a clear product again and you have this you have the barrel the wood taste um but you have a, a clear product the sense behind it in terms of taste i don't really understand it's like being fancy you know? it's and of like course you do not filter out only the, the color but you do also all, all the time you filter you filter out taste some factors that give taste to the product no matter how careful you are i think it's kind of a capitalistic thing so you want to give the people the choice to choose between 100 different yogurts and they want to give people the choice to choose between different brands right. and, and the and odd thing about it is you have a product like mezcal which is what it is because it's the same for hundreds of years mm -hmm. now capitalism comes along and says to fulfill our needs and our dynamics and growth to produce growth we have to have innovation the very character of mezcal is no innovation exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. remaining so, yeah remaining true yeah so upscaling volumes, uh, creating new stuff is everything that's juxtaposed to what mezcal is, actually. Mm, mm, mm. And can do a big negative impact in what mezcal is. Mm. So there are, some, there are some fears that I sense in, in this conversation. Is there something, some developments that uh, you are excited about or you think that are positive in, in general? Of course, there are always two sides to everything. So um, there goes a lot of money into a region that I have seen poor back in the days, you know. In Oaxaca, well, in Oaxaca City, there was also a bit of tourism down on the coast. But in the Sierras, there was nothing. Oaxaca used to be one of the places that um, sent most people illegally to the U.S. to work on the fields. Mm -hmm. I think I'm not working with any mezcal producing family that did not have people in the U.S. or still has to work there. I know that Lalo from Mezcal Real Minero, he was there a year, only one year, uh, and then came back because he didn't like it at all. I think Don Valente's son from Alipu San Andres spent about 12 years in the U.S., So he had a family in Oaxaca. So 
they would come back every once in a while, send money, of course, mm -hmm. all the time. And then at a certain stage, because the business was taking up and uh, they were bottling, the family was bottling under the Alipus label. When I met Valetta the first time in maybe 2004, 12, 11, mm -hmm. he worked alone at the distillery and he told me, look, I'm 64 years old. When I die, this business will run out. There's nobody after coming after me. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Then his grandson would team up with him and uh, work a, a bit in the distillery. And then at a certain stage, they called the son, come back home, we got work for you. And this is very important. It's not only that uh, they have work in terms like some big company would come build a, a factory to produce whatever and have, an, have this, this person as, as an employee. But it's, an, it's a heritage. It's an identity. It's their, it's their work. It's their family. It's their, exactly, it's their culture. And this is what they're, what they're coming back for. That's not only uh, giving incomes to people, but it's it's stabilizing also the entire community, the surroundings. Working the fields and doing it sustainably is in extremely important in that area or at all, because if you consider that this family has been producing mezcal for generations, they have the idea that this will has to continue for more generations. So they will buy their very motivation produce sustainable mezcal without programs without certifications what they also don't have access to because maybe they don't understand the certification many producers in mezcal don't even speak spanish mm. um, if i go to these producers their sons who visited a school have to tr tr translate many of them can't read and write of the old guys yeah um so Of course, it is important that they, money goes to that people, that young people go into this business and take over. The Minero people, Graciela has initiated to build a, a library in, in her village because this is what she was missing very much when she was a young girl, that she had no access to books. To information, okay. Yeah, so, and she asked also exporters, customers, um, people of her network to participate in that, send books and stuff like that. And all of the producers I work with have their sustainability programs motivated by themselves because they know if they don't have, they can now make a lot of money probably, but in 10 or 20 years, everybody's all, all out of business. Down. Yeah. Yeah. So this is what they do to have a sustainable production in favor of their families. And this also produces um, work in, in the communities, of course. No? Um, and it's something that the big companies, they are always talking about, oh, now that we have this product in our program, we have to give back. We have to give back to the communities and we have to do this and do that. If you work into, in, in development aid programs, And look how successful they are. I doubt very much that this has any effect on the Maybe. communities because they will just not take it's it on. It's a short-term thing. It's for marketing. It's for publicity. It's uh, you have you have once the cameras move away. <laughs> the, yeah, true. My my origins in this architectural exchange program with our designs of houses were like we are using traditional material uh, like adobe. Um, but because we are engineers, in a sense, and the people there are not, we improve the building techniques with these traditional uh, materials and teach people how, wanted to teach people how they improve their houses to make them earthquake safe. Mm. At the end of the day, we didn't teach them anything, but they taught us, or at least they taught me, how you build efficiently with what you have around you. They would just not take it because they were lacking maybe this one tool or this one resource and couldn't like change that. These indigenous buildings have they have a logic in themselves, and that's the same with economic activities like making mezcal. I ended up thinking if they have a great product like that, what helps them most is if I buy it, give them my money bring it to a new market like my country and sell it there instead of going there and want to teach them something, mm -hmm. you know? So they have resources and money and they will help themselves. Of course, they are not stupid and they know what they are doing. So enable people and they will do the right thing. Mm. That's it. Mm. Exactly. But if you intervene, you change their, their, their lifestyle, basically. 
I think we we have seen this time and time over again. So I don't want to do like a, a, a cultural thing, but if you look at uh, economics and if you look at consulting companies and they go into a company and they don't really understand how a company works and they do this consulting and there's chop cuts here and chop cuts there, but they ha usually haven't understood what a company is made of and usually they <laughs> make it worse. That's it. That is at least my experience. I think there is an analogy. So there, you bring if you bring people in who don't respect what's what's there and what's what the heritage is, and don't even try to understand it, but try to imply their methods on it. So we have always done it this way, and you should do it this way too because it's the best way. It usually doesn't work. So it has to be, it has to be a, a mutual thing. And I think it, you and the line is very fine. So if, yeah, if that's you go, the problem. If you go somewhere. You also have to be open-minded to learn something from the other side. If you just go there to teach and not take into account that there is knowledge, there is... If your aim is efficiency or, or, or production, or then you, you may be invading some of the fields you shouldn't be invading, you know? I work with some brands also that respect fully, some of the brands, of course, respect fully this, you know? Like uh, when you ask them, have you given something back? Or how's the producer feeling with you? One of the examples Esteban gave here also was like, yeah, Arturo, his son is not going to the US anymore. Mm -hmm. His son is proud of what Arturo is doing and his father didn't. And it's like, that's the, the line Axel drew right now was a good one. But how far more can you go with any producer? I mentioned Arturo, but you can mention any producer. Arturo is from... Uh, La, Venenosa La Venenosa Sierra Sur. Yeah. Mm. So how much more can you go push this, this line, this very fine line? Because you can also tell him, hey, Arturo, or hey, guy, to stop with the names, but we're going to buy 10 more distilled pots, okay? And we're going to put them there. I'm not sure if that's going to be healthy for the family. And then the guy's going to be working after hours and... You know, yeah, he's going to produce more, maybe get more money, but is that going to be healthy? So <laughs> how much giving back? How, it's, comp it's very fine. It's complicated. Uh, where, until where you should get involved there for your own benefit. Mm. There's, or, a, there's, a, there's a funny story. I think it was, it was Sombra, Sombra by, by Richard Betts. Richard, Richard Betts complained because now they've built their own distillery, but back in the days they were like buying from producers from San Juan, for example, and stuff like that. And then at some stage he complained about the fact that he could sell much more mezcal from these people, but they're not willing to work more. And they would just like sometimes on Sunday <laughs> sit in front of their house, not work, and like have a good time with the neighbors and he didn't <laughs> what understand do you do that. on sundays man <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and now now they've built their own distillery he's also one of the guys who was like he wants to give back i'm always alarmed when i hear this sentence <laughs> it's like a red flag it, right <laughs> it, definitely because if you don't take away you don't have to give back yeah. um I don't see that I have taken away something because I'm respecting volumes that they produce. I've never negotiated over prices. Mm. I've no contracts with nobody. So everybody can all the time walk away anytime. It works 10 years now. Brilliant. I've never had any problems. So, um, and the way he wants to give back is that he has designed, the, the company has designed a new kind of adobe where they use the fibers of the agaves as a, a material that stabilizes the adobe prick, the mud prick, which is a technique which is like, uh, I think it's about 5,000 years old. Mm. Every human being uh, who <laughs> built in mud bricks from, uh, you need fiber, yeah. from the Euphrat and Tigris over the old Egypt to whatever uses of course fibers <laughs> and Graciela showed me showed me the the old house where her grandfather was he built where his father was born and his grandfather built the With mud bricks hands, no? the mud like, bricks yeah. consist of chopped agave fibers from the distillery <laughs> and they, you can still see the clay pots they distill in the shards they also put into the mud bricks to save material and um And he has donated the material to some poor people that now have built their house. No, they built they built some public building with it, I, I think. And they're also using um, the vinasas. The vinasas is a problem. Also, it, it also has to do with the, with the volume produced. The vinasas is what stays in the pot still after distilling. It's the rest, and it has a very. Uh, they used to throw it in the river. Yeah, which 
which when it, it dilutes a lot, yeah. it's not a problem anymore. When but if you have a, a good, a great volume, of course, the dilution is not enough anymore, and the mm -hmm. pH, it's very acidic, mm -hmm. uh, will will uh, change. You can treat it. You can break it down by putting uh, lime into it, for yeah. example. That's what many producers start to do now. But of course, it is it is an environmental issue. Sombra puts the vinasas into the mud bricks. What I have learned working 10 years in the region with mud bricks is that you have to have a neutral water. Mm. You know, the less minerals, the better. The new, more neutral your your pH index, the better. What stays into a pot still after distillation has a lot of minerals, acid, a lot of acid, a lot of fat, because the agave is fatty. So it is not very suitable to make a building material. So you don't think this, these buildings will last very long? I have doubts or at least, and there's also a norm to mud brick production and building in Mexico as far as I know. I don't think you should go into a region, tell people how to produce stuff and give away for free building material that has not been tested, especially to poor people who don't have the choice and maybe say, no, I'd rather buy some good stuff instead no. of taking yours. But, um, well, and in, in the interview, he was saying, well, we even drove over the mud brick stones. Well, m driving over mud brick stone is not an acknowledged way of building material <laughs> testing. So, um, yeah, I would not support that, to be honest. It is something that should be addressed, though. The, the, the vinasas and the remaining fibers of the agave can have a reuse. I, I don't know about the vinasas, sorry. The fiber of the agave can have a reuse and should be reused. And the vinasas is something that should be addressed and solved. Because as we said, but I agree with, with Axel, the solutions uh, that given, we have now are not good. <laughs> given right. till now do not solve the problem, you know. But And that's not only happening in Oaxaca, that's happening in many other yeah, places. Yeah, of course, too. the tequila industry has a lot of uh, that problems now. The big distilleries do have plants to treat the water because they got the investment capital. We also have to see that, that big companies can do something about it, whereas uh, small producers are limited in their, in their possibilities. Mm. Um, it is something that should be addressed by the government also yeah. and the Consejo Regulador, which yeah. is the certifying organ in Oaxaca, and uh, help people to get along with that especially if they are producing quite some some volume san juan has the problem san juan del rio is a classic mezcal producing village and they produce quite quite a lot of stuff they are kind of hot spots for this problem if you go to minas where people produce in clay pots they produce maybe 10 or 20 percent of the volume that's in san juan Is, is produced so um, and there it are places much that you more can, no in their territory too so there's well uh, Minas is very spread over over a large area and uh, San Juan del Rio is in a valley with exactly. well this one river where everybody discards exactly. their Minas mm -hmm. too mm -hmm. yeah. and normally in the in the mountain there is more water generally mm -hmm. yeah now as we address these things this may be for the consumer something that they can ask for if they think about what mezcal to buy and where to buy it and stuff always be critical if people or brand owners tell you no we don't have any problems we don't have problems with finding good agave we don't have problems with vinasas and we have enough wood to burn and stuff like that if people tell you that there's something wrong with mm. it Of course, the big companies will tell you, no, there's no problem at all. Okay. Especially big tequila companies. We're suffering from the highest prices in history of agave right yeah. now. They used to be about between two to five pesos a kilo. Now we are at 23 pesos a kilo. So you 500% increase, basically. And you need... Uh, 1,000. 1,000, I would say, no? From two, three to 23 1,000. Uh, It's crazy, man. 1,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what do you want to say? People telling you there are no problems. Yeah, exactly. But and then you look at the data and <coughs> the data tells possible. you something different. It's not, yeah. it's Nowadays, with the techniques they have in Namatitan and Tequila Jalisco, they're not even... I don't know what they're producing sometimes, <laughs> you know, because they, 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 they cut agaves with two or three years old. Hmm. And that's a fact. Because they're using... 
so yeah remember i i'm always very liberal when i when i say i i don't mind when they use a instead of the tajona i want to see like the people i only drink mezcal from tajona and it's like yeah i want to see you pulling the tajona or you walking with a donkey around yeah i don't mind if they have a grinder that helps the family sometimes not necessarily but sometimes but when you go all the way to the diffuser that's jumping steps that's not the same product yeah You're yeah. jumping steps. And it will, you will have if the you, sequence if you is produce broken. with a diffuser. You will have an efficiency like it's almost close to 100 that yeah. that you can source per, all the yeah. sugars out of the agave, but you source, of course, a lot of other stuff out of it that changes the taste. And you will need about like four and a half to maybe five kilo of agave to produce one liter of, mm. of distillate instead of ten, right? Instead Minimum, of yeah. um, for no. for uh, in tequila, it's normally about seven or eight. It depends on the techniques and the and the plant you're using. In uh, mezcal, of course, it's it's a lot more, and this also depends on on. But in espadín, it, it rounds around ten, no more. Like. Um, ten, yeah. Then if you have like uh, Salmiana, forty Karvinskis. <laughs> The Karvinskis are very low in sugar. You would need about like the double, mm. let's say. With Salmiana, you need 40. Yeah. It depends very much how you produce. And um, also, Lalo once introduced me to, a, I think it was a Tepestate. He found five plants of Tepestate on this hill over there. Two were growing in the shade and three were growing in the sun. Mm. And they made a distillate from it. It was only like a liter or two or whatever. First, he gave me the one that was growing in the sun which had more sugars because of the sun oh, and um, he i don't know how much how much uh, agave he needs to produce that one and it was great and then he gave me but now i'm going to give you the other one and it was like the sunny one and no and the sunny one was because of more sugars yeah it had sweet he produced a bit more um, product Uh, but the ones that grew in the shadow gave less mezcal but it was far more complex mm -hmm. really yeah The sugars, All right. the sugars are responsible for the fermentation, but not for the taste. Let's say the fermentation. Yeah, you're right. What, you're right. And you have, if you have a lot of sugar, you've got a quick fermentation, a very vivid and dynamic fermentation because the yeast all the sugars. But if you have a slower fermentation, um, yeah, you may right. have sweet, sweet a, a more complex product. Yeah. Yeah, that was. It was the same mountain. It was the same agave. It was maybe from the same seeds from the same mother plant. Did you see the? Like did that. you see the plants? Were no, they it, the same size? No, no, no. It was the, it the was, ones in the sun. It was were a much bigger. It was liquid no? in the bottle already. Mm -hmm. So, but did he tell you about the plants? For sure, the ones in the sun were bigger, no? Um, Because agave loves. Yeah, them. probably. I don't know. I can't remember. But it was. Okay. It was very interesting that uh, the terroir, which means the the place where the plant comes from, has such an important impact. So um, it was the same mountain, the same hill, the same site, this, everything the same. Maybe even like clones from the same mother plant or the same seeds. But not, uh, it was easy to notice the difference. Oh, wow. Yeah. I wanted to hit maybe two more topics and then maybe we should wrap it up. Uh, so I'm, I'm the most uneducated guy here. What would you recommend to people like me? how to buy the right product in terms of also sustainability and making the right choice. Buy family-owned brands if you can or brands where the involvement of the family is given or the family is very close. The Alminero is one of the brands that is family-owned. It's a very rare example because in many cases the family needs somebody who works like a cultural bridge and also maybe economically. The classic setup is you have got a brand owner who has somebody producing for him. This is not necessarily bad, But if you look at brands with how many people they work over the time, many do not respect the families or are happy with the product or whatever. So they change producers. So they change products, which if you think in a, in a brand perspective, you'd label different products under the same label all the time and tell your consumer, no, this is still the brand that you used to know. It is not. Mm. And I, there should be... Of course, the name of the producer on the bottle, where it is made, how it is made, the more information, the better. 
a traditional ABV, which is starting at 46, 48%, can go up to 55. In the distilleries, you can even drink puntas, which are stronger than 55. This is still not a guarantee because many brands do dilute their product down to 40, 42% and still put the name of the of the producer on the bottle, though the producer would never drink that stuff. Which is true. Do a little research on what you want to buy in the internet. Now we got smartphones. You can even front of the shelf of the, in the shop, you can research over the product. The more honest information you get, the better. Don't get blinded by uh, fancy Instagram bullshit marketing lingo. And if somebody's saying they are giving back, don't buy it. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. The other thing I wanted to ask you, uh, we wanted to make this a little bit about Oaxaca too, which we haven't have only touched a little bit so far. But is there anything specific or some experience that that you want to share with us and the audience about what you have done in Oaxaca or uh, after, of course, after your history, which you explained how you got there. Is there a last story that that you have for us? Uh, a last story? Well, I, I, I went back to, or when, when I quit architecture, um, going back to Mexico was, of course, going back to Oaxaca because of... We it, have to go already. <laughs> yeah, yes. it, uh, there's something magic about that, that region. Um, it's really hard to pin down. It makes me look onto my life here in Berlin or in Germany in another way which is important to sometimes to adjust yourself in the world and what you're doing and stuff like that. Uh, what's important, what makes you happy. Unfortunately, Oaxaca is now starting to suffer or is already suffering from, from the phenomenon of over-tourism. It has become one of the like really hot spots ever since food has become trendy. Um, Oaxaca is one of the food hotspots in Mexico. So since always the, the city got really crowded gentrified uh, when i was there the first time a lot of empty houses were in the city center that's gone the city is exploding like i said i was working on on urban development in 2003 and we were estimating about between 500 to 800,000 inhabitants. Now they're far over a million, mm. easily, easily. It has become more expensive, louder, more crowded. And all of this is not happening to the advantage of the poor people in Oaxaca that are still living outside uh, in the Sierras or uh, the Valle Centrales. I don't want to tell anybody not to go there and stuff like that. I think you should have seen it once, but be careful and sensitive, mm. you know. And respectful. And respectful, you know. yeah. Oaxaca, only in the valleys, it has such a magic, man. I can, like, for example, it's not only mezcal, you know, the food, Axel mentioned, the food is extraordinary in Oaxaca. Then you have alebrijes, which is a kind of painted wood animal, well, mythological art, animal. Art, traditional art, crafts is very, very popular, Incredible. very diverse. The, the, the dark clay, mm -hmm. amazing. The, that blue thing you see, you're the one who sees it. Mm. They, they, it's painted with the, the carpet over there on the next yeah, room. Yeah, 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 yeah. That one. They, they paint in, what's the name of the town, Axel? Uh, Teotitlan de Valle. Teotitlan. In Teotitlan, they paint with... They only use n uh, natural things to do colors and stuff. And it's... For real, it's... And, and, and I'm only talking like 45 minutes from Oaxaca de Juarez. So I'm, I'm talking like in... If you still... Keep on going. Oaxaca is a, it's really a magical it's, place. It's a, so. it's a, bio, a biodiversity and also a cultural hotspot yeah. on Earth. And it's one of the oldest inhabited areas in Mesoamerica, which was the cultural yeah. area. Together with the Incas uh, in, in Peru, Mesoamerica was the second spot in the Americas with a very far developed culture. Mice, uh, corn was first cultivated in the valleys of Oaxaca. Yeah. And it's the light. What south of France for European artists was maybe a hundred years ago, always was Oaxaca for, for American artists and, and Mexican artists. Rufino Tamayo is maybe the most famous one. Toledo is the, yeah. the contemporary most famous artist from the region. He received an, an alternative Nobel Prize about 10 years ago, I yeah. think, for his cultural and work he gives a in lot the back. area. He's really liked. 
in Oaxaca. It's giving yeah. you a peck. No, 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 but in, no, but in the, no, in, 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 in the local way, you know, he's not a guy who came from outside and he, yeah. he, he does. Yeah, he's, he's from the Isthmus, which is like 200 kilometers away, but. He belongs um, there. So. <laughs> but yeah, right. yeah. Um, he brings to attention issues that official governments, organizations, etc. will not bring up. There are a lot of like altruistic activities like from the Foundation Helu, uh, for example, which is one of the richest guys in Mexico. I mean, if you're rich in Mexico, you're pretty rich. Mm. Yeah. And um, he gives a lot of money to restorations of buildings and putting up museums, free entrance, stuff like that. But because of his, let's say, social background, he will never address issues that Toledo does address. He changed his library uh, in front of Santo Domingo into a hospital during the riots in 2004, yeah. I think that was, when there were shootings on the street of Oaxaca and people died. Yeah. And protesters uh, would blockade the, the city. He changed uh, his library into a hospital for the protesters. And finally, the Mexican government sent in the Marines to to stop. To, to stop no. the the protest because the federal police, one of the <laughs> really fierce guys uh, in Mexico, they didn't make it, so they had to send in the Marines. And um, yeah, Toledo's position was was crystal clear that he is with the protesters. Mm. And uh, Eisenstein, Sergei Eisenstein, was there and said, "Yeah, this is a magical area." I don't know. So you don't know Sergei Eisenstein? No. Panzerkreuzer Potjamkin. Ah, okay. That's what mm. he did, mm. and he made a lot of uh, movies in Mexico. Some were issued, some were not. Um, look them up on YouTube. They're pretty, pretty funny sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. And yeah, we wrap it up, man. Yeah. So okay. Axel, thank you so much. This was a very deep insight, and I like that. You know, we we had a rough plan of how the conversation would go today but it took some very interesting corners very and, interesting last sounds from me uh, <laughs> very good elixir of the gods we will be back if you want to contact us reach out to us our website is www.elixirofthegodspodcast.com you can reach us on twitter at elixir podcast or you can try to find us on facebook just use elixir Pod, uh, podcast and gods in some variety and you should be able to find us it would be also amazing if you write us a message and get in touch with us and thanks for listening as always thank you for listening guys and axel uh, i personally want to thank you too man thank you for this conversation wonderful one thanks for being here that's it yeah, yeah. salut salut yeah yeah first of all salut and then ciao salut salut ciao <laughs> ciao <laughs>